Hello, this is Nathan Ray, and this is my friend, Shiloh. Hello, hello. Hi, Shiloh. Hi, how are you? I'm terrified, totally nervous. <laughs> I don't know what's going to uh, be happening in our conversation. That's usually the joys. Yeah. How do we know each other? Oof. Um, well, we met over a year ago, maybe almost two at this point. I... Uh, Got a job with the United Church, and I was looking at doing some meetings with folks through a program that I started running. And yeah, I reached out to folks in the community to see if they'd like to, to reach out to me and get to know me a little bit. And yeah, we met at Westminster Mall, and we were able to just get to know each other, get to know a little bit of our histories. And that was the start of a really great friendship of awesome discussions about faith and politics. So what would you say was your first impression of me when you first met me? Oh, that's a good question. I was a little nervous just because that was one of the first few meetings I had with folks that I didn't know. I didn't have any expectations going into it. But once we started talking, I think I felt like our relationship and our friendship would be, I think, a lot more critiquing, if that makes sense. I feel like you and I have a lot of very similar attitudes about faith and, and community, but I feel like there was a lot of things that we differed on. And I was excited about that because both of us, I felt, were really open about those differences. And we were both willing to talk about those things openly. And so I felt I was very impressed with the amount of openness you had. And I was excited to venture in on some of those topics that we didn't get to on that first day. So I think my first impression would have been excitement to, to get to know you better. What would you say some of those differences are? And what are the, some of the similarities between us? Mm -hmm. Well, first, I'll, I'll start with some similarities. I think similarly, you and I are both you know, really interested in Christianity and, and faith and learning and engaging in, in folks. I think both of us are very keen in wanting to, to learn more and to get to know people on a deeper level. And I think that both of us just come from very similar backgrounds. And I feel like we both kind of struggle and do the same things when it comes to just working and life. But some of the differences I would say were mostly would be theological. <laughs> I would say I'm very much not an evangelical. I shy away from that. Whereas I feel some of our conversations, you bring about a lot of those mindsets and, and, and theology behind it. And I think another few similarities would just be kind of the, our outlook on life. I think those are very different in the lens of faith and in the lens of, of Christianity, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think for myself, my first impression of you, it's interesting because it was sort of like an escalating impression. I know that I remember the first time I ever heard about you, it was in one of those friend suggestion lists on Facebook. And I took a look at your profile and I noticed that you were not just friends with all of the other people I was typically friends with in the Christian gay community here in Edmonton, but you were also friends with a guy that I know by the name of Adam Schaefer. Okay. And I thought to myself, oh, here's someone who is a little out of the bubble. Then when I heard that you had taken over running the uh, Haven program for uh, the United Church, I was interested in talking with you, seeing how things could go forward with that community. I remember the first good look I had of your face was a photo that was posted on Facebook that was taken during the going away celebration of Marco Rivera. Mm -hmm. 
And in that photo, I personally think it's a really terrible photo of you. You look like you were 12 years old and stoned on drugs. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And so that didn't really give a good impression of you at all. But no. when I actually got to meet you in person, there was that sense of normalcy about you. And in talking with you, you had mentioned about your journey going to Bible college and how you were navigating the policies that were put in place there as a trans person, you're female to male. And as I was listening to that particular story, I was thinking to myself, well, this is interesting. Here's someone who could have taken the opportunity to sue yet another Bible college to make sure that the rules bent towards them, but you chose the path of humility and self-denial. And that is a very Christian thing to do. And so that gave me a little bit of confidence. And I think since then, I've wavered between those highs and lows of disappointment and just understanding that you're on your own journey and mm. trying to do whatever I can to give you insight. Speaking of our journeys and our faiths and God, how has God been working in your life over the last week? Oh gosh, last week. It's hard to even put into words what this week has been just because with COVID brain, every day seems to melt into the other. Every day seems like it's the same. I think for me, some of the things that have been really life-changing is understanding that I myself can change. I think that has been not so much the theme this week, but for a while now is I've really been on the journey of trying to find myself. I felt like after high school, going into Bible college, going into school, and now going into this new position that I've been in for the last two years, I've felt like I've been on this constant roller coaster of new thing after new thing after new thing after new thing. And I haven't really taken the time to sit back and realize who am I? What do I want to do? Who do I want to be? Outside of like my work, outside of the things that I do, and, and what is really at the core of who I am. And I think God has really played a role in allowing me to have the time and space to ponder that and question that. And I've been given a lot of great opportunities to, you know, pull back from certain programs at work, put my effort into other things. I'm personally going to school right now to, to pursue a different career. So I think a lot of things have been changing. <laughs> God has really granted me, I guess, the space and the time to really take that time to reflect on my journey of where I've been, where I've come from, and now where I'm going. So if I were to ask you the question, who are you? How much of that would you be able to answer? I'd probably say 50% at this point that I would be concrete and knowing. I think I know for a fact that I'm a person that strives to love people. I'm a person that strives to help people and that I want as much good in the world as I can possibly give as an individual and as a friend, as a person, as a partner. And I think that's probably as far as I'm able to concretely answer is that I know that that's the goal that God has given me is to love people and to be a helper in the world. And how that help is distributed, I don't really know fairly. I know I, I've been helping folks in the LGBTQ community for a long time, trying to find their own spiritual journeys. Whereas now I feel like my calling is helping in a more academic, or sorry, not an academic, but more in a, in a medical way, pursuing paramedic education right now. It's something that I've really been passionate about ever since I was a youth. So yeah, I'd say right now I am journeying to loving and helping people. 
And what are the things about that answer that you're still trying to figure out? Where the boundaries of that are, I guess more of the, the direction of how far that's going to go, what it's going to look like, I think are things that I'm still pondering. So I feel like I have this idea of what I want to be, and it's just now finding out the plans and the future goals of how that's going to pan out and what it's going to look like. I think I'm still trying to wrestle out. And knowing what your limits are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you going to Nate for your higher education? I am, yes. Going through online schooling right now because uh, COVID's unfortunately still a thing. But yeah, I'm almost done my EMR classes, so I'll be hopefully doing some stuff in the, in the early summer but there's no guarantee yet. How exactly are you supposed to be doing EMR classes if you don't have equipment to practice with at home? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the classes are online because they're basic uh, medical terminology and law. I do have one class starting in March that is going to be doing first aid coursing. So I think they're limiting class sizes and having everyone have their own equipment. So it's a little bit more pricey, unfortunately, but I hope that that's still going to go. It depends on what COVID does. Who knows what's going to happen in the next few weeks. The classes might be canceled or postponed. But from this point on, any classes that can be over the internet are, but those first aid courses where we get certified will have to be in person. But again, with smaller group sizes. Makes sense. I would say for myself, the way that God has been working in my life over the past week, very shortly after I recorded my last episode, I had just gotten permanently banned from an online Discord server that catered to artists, animators, and screenwriters. And in getting banned, I had the mindset of, well, technically, I'm not a member of the server anymore, so I don't really have to do what the leaders are expecting of me. I don't have to worry about any further consequences now that this relationship has been completely burned to the ground. So I managed to hack my way into the Discord server for the sake of taking resources that were on offer there. And as I was milling about the server, I came across a discussion on the mental health channel that was part of the server It was written the day after I had initially gotten banned and it was just a whole lot of people talking about how much they hated me, how glad they were to see me go. That's awful. Yeah. Especially in a mental health form too. That's brutal. Yeah. Like I I don't think I've experienced this much hate for a long time and like that's saying something because I've had people throw slurs at me I've had people pile on me before but not like this and it's it's one thing when you think of these people as your enemies but many of these people I have thought of as friends and so coming away with the impression of oh these people who I enjoy hanging out with and now it turns out that they never really enjoyed hanging out with me that was like a total punch in the gut And then on the same day that I found out about this, I got a message from an acquaintance of mine. She was the ex-girlfriend of a guy who I had lent some money to. You and I have previously discussed this before. I had lent upwards of about $2,000 to him to help him out. He was going through some rough patches in his life. And I wanted to, you know, just make sure that he wasn't on the street And I I got this message from his ex-girlfriend informing me that not only did he deliberately lie and manipulate me into lending him the money, 
but he also did that with the parents of his ex-girlfriend, her best friend, his best friend. And in total, he now owed people about $10,000. Wow. Yeah. Once again, this is someone I have had a huge amount of respect for in the past. And that respect has slowly been declining over the last year and a half. But now it's just like, it's completely destroyed. I can't trust him anymore. And that just made me really angry. And like where God comes into all of this giant mess is the day after that, I was at a young adult worship service with a church that I go to called The Summit. And in it, the message that was being preached that night was talking about how our motivations need to be in alignment with God's motivations, how God would react to certain things and how we might want good things in life, not just for ourselves, but for other people. But without God leading us, sometimes those good intentions can result in bad things happening. And I was trying to figure out like, what exactly, what good did I want to come out of these terrible situations? And looking over a list that was being projected onto the front wall, I came across an attribute that I felt really resonated with me, and that was justice. I wanted the people on the server to experience shame and punishment because they had kicked me off for inappropriate behavior. And then when they thought no one was looking, they went ahead and spent hours just digging on me. And doing inappropriate behavior themselves. And doing inappropriate behavior themselves, (laughs) yes. And for my friend, I wanted my money back. I wanted him to give the money that he had borrowed from other people. And I, I wanted him to just say, hey, look, I lied and I'm sorry. And here's what I'm planning on doing in order to make amends for that. And I'm also fine with just not having to instantly rely on so many people whenever things go wrong in my life. I'm willing to be humble and just wanting those things to be the results and not knowing if those would actually be the results because depending on my response, I could just come across as very angry and entitled. And during that message, I asked God, God, what do you want me to do specifically for the server, not specifically for my friend, but specifically for the server. And the answer I got back was, Nathan, let it go, move on. And I'm like, okay. I still think that I can reach out to certain people on the server who did not slander me and say, hey, do you want to be friends? I can reach out to certain people who are against me and then say, hey, this is what I've been learning throughout this experience. But in terms of like actively taking revenge against those people or trying to get back into the group, I'm just going to move on from that. Yeah, I think that's a really brilliant understanding. I think that's something that I struggle with doing as well, is that realization that there's nothing really to do other than to move on. Because what good does it do to, you know, get revenge? What good does it do for you? What good does that do for others? It makes Um, you feel good. It makes you feel good, but for how long? Does it really make you feel good? (laughs) Five minutes. It makes you good. It makes you feel good for five minutes. Exactly. And I think that's the attractive part about revenge and seeking for that rightful justice is that that satisfaction that you were redeemed in a way 
But I think there's also something humbling about realizing that, you know what, it's not worth the time and effort to fight back or to, you know, get your revenge. Because in the end of the day, those people, I don't want to say they don't matter in, in general, but in, in your own life and in your experience, in theory, they don't, they don't matter. Yeah. You have your own life, you have your own journey, and they are no longer part of it. And so in the grand scheme of things, they're obsolete. And so to, to not focus your energy and your, your mindset on that, rather to focus it on something else that's more positive. Yeah, definitely. I think as I was processing this, I was arranging my life, thinking back on my life and arranging it as if it was this TV show. And the thing about life as a story, whenever you retell it, you tend to leave out the boring parts or the parts that ultimately don't amount to anything. And I think for this server in particular, I was with these people for about 10 months. I had a lot of good times with them, learned a lot of valuable information, but in the grand scheme of my life, they didn't really provide anything of substance. With my friend, the one who conned me, it's a totally different matter because I do view him as an integral part of certain things that have happened in my life. Without him, I wouldn't have met certain people. I wouldn't have pursued certain events in my life. And so for him, I can say that that he still matters. But for this server in particular, I will agree that they don't matter. And I have to be accepting of that. But speaking of what matters in life, and this is going to be an interesting transition, Last Christmas, we gave each other books as presents. How would you describe the book that you gave me? And what would you say was your motivation for giving it to me? Fair enough. Yeah. So the book I gave you was called, was it Light and Salt or Salt and Light? I can't remember. The salt order. and Light. Salt, salt and Light. Nice. Yeah. It's essentially a collection of kind of writings from the past. Most of them actually from German folks in the early 1900s. And it pretty much goes through the Beatitudes of Jesus through the book of Matthew. And I think my reasoning to give it to you, I was trying to think of, I have tons of books, way too many books. And I remember wanting to give you something that I felt you would enjoy and that you would find useful. I'm always the person that hates getting useless gifts. I prefer things that are very tangible that I can use. And so I wanted to give you something that I felt was tangible in your life and in your journey right now. And I found a lot of solace in this book in helping just understand community, understand Christian living, to understand kind of the life that Jesus lived and how to replicate that in our own world. And so that was the reason why I gave it to you. I felt like that was something that you would appreciate. I felt like it was something that you would actually be able to read and digest in a way that could potentially benefit your life or potentially change a little bit of your own theology, maybe even challenge your theology a little bit. That was what I was hoping for, is this challenge or this notion of learning and trying to figure out what this means in your life. And so out of all of the books I had, that one spoke to me to give to you, and I didn't question that calling. <laughs> and I think you sort of had the right mindset in giving that book to me because for reasons that we'll get into a little bit, it was certainly very challenging. It was challenging in a good way. I didn't feel like the author of the book was trying to attack me in some way, which was good. There were certain concepts that he was trying to attack that initially I rolled my eyes at, but just 
thinking about it and reading more of the book until the very end, I could see how all the pieces fit together in order to create this very cohesive theology. And for myself, the reason why I gave the book that ended up being your present over to you, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. We've had a lot of discussions about the nature of poverty and family and hierarchy. And this is getting into what we disagree with the most, because I would describe you as someone who is very big on the idea that social welfare needs to be expanded. We need to do away with all corrupt institutions of power. Hierarchy is useless. We shouldn't look to that as a structure. And I take the opposite approach. (laughs) The reason why I take the opposite approach is not because I'm just trying to repeat conservative talking points, but also because some of this is stuff that I have experienced in the past. I have been on welfare before, and it absolutely sucks. It's something that I'm glad exists, but it's not an experience I would ever want to go through again. And I think for myself, there was this certain fatigue of trying to explain my perspective to you repeatedly. And so I thought, you know what? I'll bring in another person, someone who is much better at writing up these arguments than I, someone who has a very good story that at the very least, I hope will touch you in some shape or form. And from there, we can talk about what's in the book Mm -hmm. and see what you agree with and what doesn't resonate with you. All right. Um, What did I like about the book? I think the part that I liked the most about the book was how vulnerable JD was. I think there was a lot of things that was probably really hard to write. I think it's something that not a lot of people experience. Yet I also found a lot of my own story in it. I found that that was, that was something I, I didn't expect, especially with the name Hillbilly. Uh, um, that even just the title put me off a little bit. And I was like, oof, do I really want to read about a Hillbilly? Um, especially someone coming from Northern Canada in big cities. Country folk aren't really my forte, especially being someone who's in the queer community. It's a hard line to cross. And so to be honest, it was a little intimidating to start reading it. I wasn't sure which direction it would go. But yeah, I think, what would be your favorite argument in the book? That'd be a question I have for you. My favorite argument in the book and the one that spoke to me the most was when J.D. Vance is talking about when he was going to school and, and how his school life and home life connected with each other when he was moving from place to place, when he was finding himself in these abusive situations, his grades were tanking. And for the last three years of his time in high school, his grades actually went up because during that entire time, he was staying with his mama. And she's not necessarily a nice character, but she's someone who still cared about him, who wanted to make sure that he was getting his homework done, that he had the best equipment possible. And that sense of stability was what helped him do well in school, even when everything else was against him. And what stood out to me about that 
is that growing up, I went to high school in three different countries. I started off junior high in Ireland doing homeschooling online, which ended up blowing up in my face. From there, I went to secondary school in Ireland, went there for about two years from Ireland, moved to Scotland, did a year of secondary school in Scotland there. From Scotland, moved back to Canada and was initially denied the chance to go back to high school because I had gotten kicked out of my grandmother's funeral at the time. Eventually, I managed to persuade my parents to let me finish up my high school education, did that through homeschooling online, which also blew up in my face. And finally, after moving to Edmonton, I finished up my final year of high school, this time in a more traditional environment. And so during all that time, I had to deal with moving countries, living with a dysfunctional family, situations where I had these really high stakes year-end exams that I needed to take and always finding myself in the middle of trouble right before I was supposed to take them. Just a whole lot of unpleasant experiences. Somehow I managed to get good enough grades to get all the way through, but I graduated high school two years later than most of my peers. A lot of those unpleasant experiences they still affected me years after that. And the one time that I felt 100% genuinely happy when I was going to high school was that final year in Edmonton, because I didn't need to worry about a stressful end of year exam. I didn't have to worry about my parents deciding to move cities or countries again. I got to focus on a lot of subjects that were enjoyable to me, like computer animation, video editing, working with computer software. And I think since then, that idea of stability, it's something that I don't think I've fully grasped, but it is something that I recognize the value of. That was sort of a moment where I was like, oh my gosh, I actually relate to this. On one hand, if I had stayed in Ireland the whole time, I don't know if that would have been good for me. But at the same time, there's still a part of me that wishes that I could have had a more stable existence and that I was living with a family that was not as dysfunctional. We'll put it that way. Yeah, that's fair. I think that was one of the things that really drew me into the book. Even J.D. Ewan mentions like being a sociologist and seeing all of these issues in his life that were causing this. And even elegantly even shared that, yeah, like my schooling was trash when I was young, when, you know, my mother was fighting with the number of boyfriends that she had, the number of people in her life, and just the fact that their whole family was There was no stability. There was no stability in housing. There was no stability in partners. There was no like stable father figure for JD. He even mentions like his sisters going around all the time and leaving house. Um, And so there was a lot of stories within his own story that plays a huge role, I think, in not only childhood development, but even just being in a community in general. And I think that was probably the give and take that I, I felt with his story is that there were 
a whole bunch of issues that he was worrying about, right? Like similar to you, like worrying about moving, worrying about all these things really drains the, the mind to be able to, to really focus and study. And he saw that and it wasn't until the, yeah, his last three years with, with his grandmother that he had almost a quote unquote boring life. <laughs> you know, there was not, you know, all these people fighting. There wasn't, you know, men coming in and out. There was no mom around to be high and, and all this stuff. And so I think it was easier for him to put in that effort and put in that mental capacity capacity that was still full at that point to into schooling and then eventually going into the Marine Corps and then eventually going to law. And so I think there is that great stability there. But I think the one thing that I think that I found also acceptable is that even though there was a lot of issues that JD experienced, he still had a really foundational community that makes sense like he had you know he had that trust and, and reliability with his sister he had that relationship with his Milan and, and his grandfather before both passed he had those stable relationships and even eventually having that stable relationship with his father for many years afterwards I think those kind of relationships helped JD and I also think that those relationships often get overlooked when we talk about trauma and talking about just growing up because uh, similar I there's so many, so many things in my in my past that I wish were different I wish you know I was wasn't queer I wish I you know had a more stable upbringing I wish I had so many of these supports that unfortunately I didn't have either and and that's really ruined a lot of my education as well as is in my own addictions that caused me to drop out and I think that there is that that nice balance of there is that chaos that's there that ruins children and ruins the capability that some folks have and and we see that we see that with different generational trauma we see that where those cycles aren't broken where children would grow up in abusive and, and alcoholic homes or drug addict homes often do the same thing as their parents did because they don't have any other supports. Whereas there's so many folks that, you know, have that experience, but then are finally that breaking point where they break that cycle of abuse and addictions. And I think it's hard, not only in sociology, but it's hard in general to find where is that line? What is the difference between those two people? What is the difference between the kids that make it like JD did? And what are the kids that don't? And what are the driving factors? And I think having positive folks in your life were helpful for that. And I think his grandparents were one of those factors that helped him strive forward. I don't think he relied a lot on his mother to do that. And I felt like she was probably that chaos that he had. And similarly to me, like I had my pastor when I was in high school, where I was, you know, still struggling with addiction, still struggling with my queer identity, not sure where I was going to go. I had that stable figure in my life that helped direct me. And that for me was a person, but even so, you can even go as far as saying, you know, faith and the faith communities can be that. And he even mentioned that a little bit, even though the church that his dad went to was a little more evangelical than he even mentioned that he liked, but that there was that sense of community. There was that livelihood of, of people stepping up and, and being there for you, I think is something that's really important. I think that's why Christianity itself is so amazing in a way, is that it takes all of these people, all of these broken people, and we come together and create that new like stable community that everyone needs growing up and you know you have that quote you know it takes a village to raise a child and I think that's very true and I think that's why folks who are able to have wider communities growing up and and learning from I think is really great so those are some of the my responses to to your favorite part that was one thing that I noticed too was just seeing that his progression of, of chaos and how he was able to overcome that I think was really profound was there anything about the book that in reading it, you thought to yourself, I get what the author is trying to say, but I don't agree with it? That's a good question. Nothing inherently stands out. 
I know there was a few parts where I was like, okay, I don't think you should have included this. I feel like this is not that important. <laughs> I felt like he could have cut down a lot of the story or maybe went into more depth on certain parts that I felt were more important. I know I didn't get to the last few chapters, unfortunately. And so there might be some stuff in there that you might be able to tell me about that I might disagree on. But I felt like he had a pretty robust understanding. And of course, this is in hindsight as well. Like he, he's retelling a story now as an adult. And you have a lot more maturity. And so some things might be changed looking back on things. Like I know things like for me, I definitely thought certain things when I was a kid. And now looking back, I'm like, oh, no, that was wrong. <laughs> but yeah, no, nothing personally stands out that I felt extremely against in a way. Yeah, was there anything for you that stood out that you were like, ah, nope. <laughs> I think the closest that I would say that I didn't agree with There's a section in the book where the author is talking about the value of payday loans. Mm. So there are these really high interest loans that you can take out. And the idea is that you're meant to pay them off as quickly as possible. And he talked about the value of that for himself, where there was a time in his life when he was short some money, he needed it quickly and the best way for him to acquire that money before getting paid his regular salary was to take out a small payday loan and then pay it back with the interest added a couple of days later. And that sort of falls into the category of, I can understand how that might be a benefit to you. And I understand how that might be a benefit to other people. But at the same time, I also understand why people would not want that system in place because it can be easily exploited on the lender's side, on the borrower's side. And I guess it sort of goes into this little main debate as to what are the undesirable things of this world that we are willing to tolerate for the benefit that they bring. Like, for example, marijuana. Do we legalize marijuana so that we can stop imprisoning people for selling this drug that's not killing as many people as heroin or cocaine? Do we legalize it for the benefit of people who actually need it to take away chronic pain? Or in legalizing it, are we going to allow a large amount of our population the opportunity to take a drug that's going to inhibit them? And that's going to encourage them to be not productive with their time. That sort of falls into a similar debate with payday loans, I'd say. Yeah. I think we can talk about that in anything, especially around finance and especially around politics, is, is where is that balance of who is it helping and who is it hindering? And finding out what are the pros and cons, I guess, behind that. So I guess for payday loans, exactly. I personally would never get one just because I do find them quite predatory. They usually only give those to folks that normally can't pay it back. And that's why they have such high interest on those things is because they know that people who take them out probably aren't going to be able to pay them back right away, even though some do. And and in this case, JD did. But I think as well, if we are to get rid of that practice, we need to find a way to support people instead. And I think that's kind of, that goes back to my own personal stance on economics with allowing more government intervention, especially with social welfare, especially with universal income, especially with all of those things. Having the ability for folks to have a living wage even as well, like we even talk about minimum wage too, but allowing folks to have the means to live, I think 
outweigh the cons of it. A lot of folks talk about how like having minimum wage and having, you know, universal incomes are all ways that are going to ruin the economy, but in ways they fulfill the economy, mostly because you have folks who are able to now live and buy things. You have folks that are going to stimulate the economy now because they're not worrying about where the next paycheck is going to go. You have now less crime and less violence in the society because a lot of crime is directed towards surviving because folks need to go through crime to get the money that they need or to get the resources that they need because they can't do it anywhere else. We would remove the fact for advanced payday loans. So there's so many things that that happen. Again, those things are going to be long-term. We're not thinking that, you know, crime is going to go down to 0% <laughs> immediately. So these are more long-term goals, hopefully. But I think it goes down to that same idea of who is it benefiting and who is it not? And what are the pros and cons to each? And what's the better deal, almost? I personally would really like a world where we can find a way that everyone is perfectly and equally have the advantages of life and everything is justice and everything is fair but unfortunately we live in a world that's not the case and so how do we navigate as people how do we navigate as christians in a world that's not fair with a god that is and i think that ties in nicely with the thematic material of the book that you gave me salt and light where it goes into detail about once again the power of community and how communities can come together in order to support each other and i think For myself, initially, one of the biggest issues I had with the book, and arguably I still have this issue, was that it seemed to be very anti-capitalistic. And I'm someone who, I'm not like, capitalism is the best thing ever, it's going to make the world a better place, but at the same time, I'm not someone who says capitalism is evil, we need to take down this institution because it's clearly not benefiting the world. It benefits the world. It also hurts a lot of people. It's, it's like a tool. It's like a knife in a way. It's this impersonal force that doesn't really care if you win or lose just as long as you keep the machine running. I think there's a benefit to that system in that as long as the machine can keep running, most people are going to be fine within it. And so when I was reading the book and it was talking about how capitalism is inherently evil because it's this competition and people are going to lose and people are going to have their lives destroyed, I was thinking to myself, well, yeah, that is kind of the point. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing. We can still use this system in order to create wealth and bring about good in this world. So what's the alternative? Is it socialism? And I found out that answer later on in the book where it was talking about, no, it's not socialism because socialism is about forcing people to give up their wealth in order so that the underprivileged can rise up and become more equal. What it was proposing instead was something of a third system where we all come together, we voluntarily surrender our rights to property, our rights to our own personal belongings, and we allow ourselves to become fine with the idea of sharing with others because that is what Christ would do for us. I think that is a much better idea than instituting socialism in a government structure because what you're saying is you want to make sure that people get what they need and that's totally fine that's perfectly fine the thing is people don't just want what they need they want what they want they want more they are not content with what they have 
And if you give people $2,000 a month so that they can spend it on their bills, their rent, groceries, they might take a look at that $2,000 and think to themselves, well, I can use part of that money to pay for a flat screen TV with no money down and take part in a purchasing plan. And like, there are just numerous ways that that system can be exploited in its own way. And the thing is with capitalism, you can still have that same behavior, but there's not as much of an expectation that you are only going to be given what you need. If you want, you can go and you can get more than what you need. You can get what you want. And I think that the system that was described in Salt and Light, it's not just about what we need, what we want. It's about surrendering what we want and what we need over to a community of other people so that we might be able to come together and provide for each other. And I think that is a much more ideal scenario for myself maybe for you, maybe for other people than just simply saying, well, we're going to let the government step in and we're going to give $2,000 to everyone so that they can pay off their bills. Yeah, I definitely agree and disagree. I think the notion of what you're getting at, I completely agree. I, I think that was the reason why I liked Salt and Light so much is that it brings about this idea that we as Christians and not even as Christians, we as humans need to really look out for each other. We are social beings. You know, we're not individuals. We are from families. We're from tribes. We're from nations. Like there's so many layers of communities that we are all a part of and we strive off of that. And without that, it's not going to be possible. And so I think that idea of sharing wealth and sharing land and sharing resources is great in theory. <laughs> I think this is where communism gets this idea of this idea of sharing is great. And then in practice, you have the creed. You have those people that don't care. You have those people that want to be on top. And I think that's why I personally enjoy socialism more so than capitalism, just because I feel like socialism is a perfect balance between the two. It's this idea of allowing still capital gain. You're still allowed to have all that extra money for things that you want to buy. If you work harder, you get more money, you can spend it on whatever you want. It still is in a capitalist-ish society where, you know, innovation's happening, markets are still in. But the thing with socialism is that it, I like that you, you said that you didn't like that the government forcing people to give up their wealth, whereas I feel like it has to be that way. I don't think it can be done without, not so much government in general, like I don't think it needs to be government, but I think there needs to be some external force that either educates people to provide their wealth or is forcing them to provide their wealth, because I don't think people are going to do it on their own, because if they do, they would have done it by now. Because with capitalism, as we know it now, there and, and we're, we're seeing people that do it. If anyone's familiar with, you know, Mr. Beast, for example, he's a YouTuber. He's probably worth millions of dollars at, at this point. And, and his whole YouTube channel is about getting sponsorships for these videos. And he'll do bizarre things. Like he'll try to destroy like a hundred cars that are going to the downpour. He'll like do some weird stuff to get money and views. But then at the end of his videos, he's always giving people things. Like there was one video where he bought a pizza and gave the delivery man the, the house. Like he gave him the keys to the house because he just bought the house outright and gave it to this man. And so like, there's all these videos of him doing this. And we're seeing it a lot more, especially with another YouTuber, David Dobrik, who meets random people and buys them cars. And so there's, there's this notion of young people right now, especially over the internet, especially right now, if we're, if we're even talking about stocks right now with the whole GameStop frenzy and the underdog kind of coming in and screwing over multi-billionaires, I think 
is a great external force that we need. I think it's starting to come to the point where young people like us and, and even younger are starting to realize that, yeah, this whole capitalist greed thing has got to go because we realize that it, it's it's all useless. If we all work together, if, if we have wealth equity, if we have universal healthcare, if we have, you know, cheap or free university, you know how far our society would get if everyone had the opportunity to learn and be able to have these advanced careers. I think that is what we need to do. And I think there needs to be some sort of external force. And I think that's where I would agree with you on is that I don't fully know if that external force should be government. I don't know if it should be something else. But I think as we live in a capitalist society now, this notion of, of sharing and combining isn't working and we're seeing that we're seeing that with you know in the last year every there's been 50 percent unemployment rates in the in the western hemisphere and we have literally the top one percent making almost 150 percent profits off of you know all of us going unemployed and we're starting to see that that's not fair and that's not justice and i think that kind of goes back to what we were originally talking about is this idea of fairness and I think a lot of people are just pissed. I think a lot of people are mad that there's so many people in this world that have billions of dollars and they do nothing with it. Sure, some of them share money to charities and stuff, and that's awesome and great. But with all of the wealth that these people have, we could end world hunger 10 times over. We can fix all of the water crises that we have in Canada, even with the reserves. There's money in this world that we can fix a lot of these inherent problems of starvation, shelter, water, healthcare. There's so many things that we need as humans to survive that we have the means to use. And we can do it right now in a flick of a switch. We can easily do all of this with the money that we have. But people that have the money don't. And I think that's the issue that we're seeing now is that people who are growing up in this, in this society are realizing that these people aren't going to do it. And so now we need an external force to get them to do it because there's no way that we can do it as people. We need some sort of motion. We need some sort of revolution. We need some sort of government intervention. We need something to get these people to realize that they're just hoarding all of this wealth when we all could be living in a way better society. We've advanced so much in the last 20 years in technology that we were almost at a point where barely any human has to work. You know, we have the automation, we have the machinery, we have the money to be able to provide for almost everyone on this earth. And yet still we have huge wealth and economic gaps. And I think that's unfair. And I think that's something that we as Christians need to combine together and reinforce. So a couple of things that I want to say in response to that the first point, and this is a comparatively minor one, is that when you were mentioning that we have over 50% unemployment in the uh, Western Hemisphere, that's not because of failure of capitalism, that's because of the COVID pandemic that we're in. What you're saying about there are all these billionaires out there who they're just hoarding their wealth, they're not really giving it away. You know, I think for some billionaires that come to mind, People like Oprah Winfrey, she was using her money to build schools in South Africa, making sure that people uh, got a good education down there. Richard Branson, he's a billionaire. He uses his money to fund his various companies from mobile phone companies to working in space engineering. Elon Musk is the richest person on the entire planet. He's worth over $200 billion. And I believe I've listened to an interview from him where he was talking about how he wanted to spend that money in order to go to Mars and make sure that we established a stable population there. 
as well as taking some of that money and building up Tesla, making sure that we all had clean electric cars that we could drive around in. And even Jeff Bezos, who I'm not really a big fan of, in the aftermath of the divorce with his wife, uh, Mackenzie Scott, she has donated quite a bit of her fortune to various charitable causes, most of the time anonymously. With Jeff Bezos, I was reading an article in Bloomberg a while back where it was talking about how in the wake of his resigning as top CEO from Amazon, he was planning on taking some of the wealth that he was building up and he was planning on investing it in aerospace engineering, in daycare programs, in various social initiatives. There's this quote from Andrew Carnegie that I really like, where he talks about how the first third of someone's life needs to be spent learning all you can. The second third needs to be spent making as much money as you can. And the last third needs to be spent giving away as much money as you can. And so if Jeff Bezos is following that track, it's something that I'm fine with. I just kind of wish that he didn't do it while also bankrupting businesses and cheating on his wife. Yep. (laughs) But what you're talking about, how there needs to be an external force, there needs to be a revolution to make sure that this happens. Let me put out a hypothetical scenario to you. You mentioned earlier that you wish that you weren't queer, correct? Yeah. Okay. Now, for the sake of argument, let's say that being queer is 100% in the wrong. It's on the same level as being greedy. How would you feel if someone came to you and said, we're going to force you to stop being queer so that you can live the best possible life that God has envisioned for you. Hmm. How well do you think that would work out for you? I think it's hard because it's hard for me to separate myself from my identity. And so feeling like it's something like greed, I feel like it's a little hard to try to detach But what I would say, yeah, like if it was something like greed or if I was just being lazy and if being queer wasn't like an intrinsic identity piece, yeah, I would want to try to live in a way that made my life better. And I think I would say if it's not an intrinsic identity piece and something that is not producing life-giving or fruitful means, then yeah, I think that's something that I would consider potentially changing. Okay. The point that I'm trying to get at is like, maybe for someone else, they view greed as part of their identity, or maybe they wouldn't necessarily phrase it that way because it's sort of like, you know, I'm a sociopath at heart. It's not something you really want to brag about to other people, but you might say to other people, yeah, I really like that. I make a lot of money. I like that. I'm financially secure. I like that. No one can touch me, but You're going to people like them and saying, we're going to take away the money that you've earned and we're going to redistribute it among people who actually deserve that money. It's not going to necessarily change their mindset. It's not going to change their heart. And likewise, if someone were to come to you as a queer person and say, you know what, we have this process which will make it so that you don't have to live this queer lifestyle so that you don't have to be in conflict with so much theology. It can be the truth, 
but it's not something that you would sincerely believe in. And I think what's interesting about being Christian and being a follower of Jesus is that when Jesus was here on earth, people wanted him to be that revolutionary. People wanted him to be the kind of person who would come in with an army and overthrow the Roman Empire and make it so that everything could be the way it was meant to be that had been prophesied in the book of Isaiah, that Israel would regain its rightful place as the center of the world. And it didn't happen. Jesus did not call people to arms. He did not overthrow the Roman government. He got unceremoniously executed. But in his death and resurrection, he was still able to change people's hearts. People were able to take up his cause, not of destroying the government, but of getting people to acknowledge that they were in need of a savior. And slowly, gradually, it got to the point where the Roman Empire, it didn't need to be overthrown because it became Christian. And granted, it also fell about 150 years after that, but still... Yeah, I see what you mean. I think for me, I as well as I almost see it as the same idea of this revolutionary Jesus coming in. And yeah, you know, he didn't change the entirety of, of the Roman Empire. He didn't do any of that, but he did spark a movement and a huge movement to be exact, because here we are, you know, almost 2000 years later, and there's still, you know, Christianity is one of the number one practice religions in the world and it became worldwide which is amazing considering it was just a bunch of people in in a small little town and so I, i do think that jesus's message is really great in that idea of sharing and changing people's hearts and i do think that there is some sort of external force that does that for folks that are you know multi billionaires but i think how I see it is that a lot of it comes down to socialization. And I think this is why my sociology degree coming out is where we're brought up to believe certain things and those things are hard to kind of get away from. And I think for many of the folks that are billionaires now, they grew up in a world where, you know, being poor was, that was it. You know, they grew up probably in the great depression or soon thereafter. And they saw a lot of that poverty. They saw a lot of that stuff. And they finally were able to live that American dream. And and like you said, like enjoy being that person that has money, enjoying being untouchable, enjoying that and having that fun. But I think what's happening now is that more and more people who are younger, who are going into education, who are living lives now are starting to be socialized to share more, to be this type of heart changing movement. And I think in the next few decades when we start seeing a lot of these these older folks who are rich starting to pass down their wealth to their children and to their grandchildren and eventually I feel like society in general will have shifted away from this individualistic mindset that we were in where it's all about you know me 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 and what I need to do in my life and what I need to do to succeed and rather being more socially based like it used to be where it was like me and my family me and my community me and my nation And I feel like that will come back again. And I think that will be that heart-changing movement. And I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I hope it's something that happens in my lifetime, but I'm not holding my breath. But it's something I still strive for. It's, and I think this goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning when I was talking about, you know, what's God doing in my life. And that's why 50% of what I've realized is that I want to be someone that helps people. You know, I want to be someone that loves people. And, and to do that is to advocate for the ability for folks to live a life of not being, not starving, to have shelter, to have clean drinking water, because those are the means that we can get to. And that's something that is attainable. It's not some sort of, <laughs> I guess, like free for all dream. It's something that's attainable. And I think that's something that I will continue to advocate for. 
whether again that be some sort of heart-changing movement with the youth in our society second coming of jesus might change people's minds or if it is you know government intervention i think that's just something that i strongly advocate for is that everyone deserves to live a decent life (laughs) does that mean that everyone gets mansion a lamborghini no of course but having the means to live, I think, is is a base that all humans should have, especially in this time. We've come so far in advancing technologies, in medicine, in food production, to the point where having poor people is it's laughable. It's like, how are we still in this situation? And yeah, I think more of my frustrations is that there's all this injustice with the ability to change it, and it's just not changing. Well, I think we're better off right now than we were 200, 300 years ago like the ratio of rich to poor people was far greater. There really wasn't a middle class. I know that I have friends from Ethiopia and they have mentioned to me of how over in that country, the economic situation, there really is no middle class either. And there is this stark divide between rich and poor people. And it's very Victorian. We're not 100% perfect right now. But I I don't want to discount that we've made a lot of progress in the last 150, 200, maybe even 300 years. And that in part has been because of things like the Industrial Revolution and modernization. That's why I wouldn't say that I'm a communist. (laughs) I wouldn't go that far because I do see that brilliant side of capitalism that has sparked a lot of this movement. Like Having the ability to have water and food and shelter and all of those things are all a result of capitalism. We wouldn't be here without it. And I think that that's something that is often misled in a lot of these socialist versus capitalist or communist versus capitalist arguments is that a lot of people who are against capitalism fail to realize that capitalism's got us pretty far. (laughs) But I think now it's realizing how far can it go before it starts collapsing in on itself. And it starts to no longer actually enhance the well-being. And I think we're almost there. I think we're getting to that point that is no longer helping the people. It's only helping a small few. And we're going back to that that idea of that stark difference between rich and poor. And there's no longer going to be a middle class again. And I think that's my fear is that it's going to get to that point. But yeah, so I I just wanted to to say that I agree with you that, yeah, definitely in the last 300 years, we've seen so much advancement and that couldn't be done without capitalism. One more question I want to ask in relation to the books that we've read. In Salt and Light... A lot of attention is drawn to the fact that if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you need to be willing to give up everything. Yeah. And this isn't specifically within the Sermon of the Mount, but I am reminded by that story in the Bible where Jesus and his disciples are talking with a rich young ruler and the guy is asking Jesus, what can I do in order to get to heaven? And Jesus says to him, well, have you followed all the commandments? And the man says, yes, I have. And Jesus says, well, all right, then sell everything you have, give to the poor and come follow me. And the man can't do that. Jesus doesn't say, hey, look, if you don't do this, I'm going to influence your local governor to make sure that you get especially taxed so that you can reach this level of poverty. And then you'll have no choice but to come follow me. Jesus just lets him go and moves on with his life. And I I think the question that I'd want to ask you is, are you in a place where you'd be willing to do that? And if not, why haven't you done it? Great question. I know that that was one of the things that challenged me when I read it, was seeing that, like, give up everything. And I think for me, when I was pondering that, I think 
my understanding of that is not so much giving up everything, but rather so being willing to give up everything. And I think that's kind of where I'm at is that for me, I don't have much. <laughs> and so I think that's, that's one thing that I'm at is that I don't have much to give personally. And I think that's one thing that hurts me is that there is nothing I can give that I don't already have that I personally already need. And I think that if I was able to get into a point where I was able to provide more than what I needed, I'd like to say that I would be someone that would give that away. And I think that's one thing that I've, I've wanted to do for a very long time. And I've talked about this for many, many years with multiple different people is that I wish that, you know, if I was rich, oh man, I would love to go around and give my money away to people that needed it. I would love to be able to go down to, you know, the local food shelter and, you know, fill up all of their, their shelves. I would love to be able to go to the family next door who missed a meal because their check bounced and, and provide them food. Like there's those, those things that I would love to do. And I do do them when I do have the means to. But I think right now where I'm at, it would be hindering my own livelihood if I gave up everything. Yeah, I agree. And that's part of the reason why I haven't followed that path either is because ultimately I want to be able to create my own TV show. I want to run that and that's going to cost a lot of money. Unfortunately, I think like there's nothing wrong with building up a whole lot of wealth. And then once again, going back to the Andrew Carnegie quote, learn as much as you can, make as much money as you can, give as much money away as you can. I don't think there's anything wrong with adopting that mindset, but the idea with entering the kingdom of God is that you kind of have to acknowledge that none of it really matters except for Jesus. And you have to be willing to give up everything in order to be with him. And I don't think I'm at that point in my life yet. And it's, it's not something that I am pleased to admit on the record, but it's something that I hope I can let go of one day. I agree. Honestly, out of everything that Jesus has said, <laughs> I think this is probably the hardest thing. And not even for us, but I think for a lot of people. And I think that is my struggle with it too, is that I feel like there's two sides of it. Of, of Yeah, there, there's folks like us who, who don't have a lot of stuff to give in the first place. And that both of us hope to get to that point. But I also think it's it's not so much about giving, but rather being able to let go and not have it be the focus. And my reasoning is uh, when I was reading Salt and Light, I, it drew me into a lot of what Paul uh, talks about when it comes to marriage and sex, where he talks about, you know, don't jump into marriage. <laughs> you know, Jesus is the forefront. You know, if you're not, if you're able to, you know, not be induced with passion, then don't get married. Because it's a distraction of the truth. It's a distraction of following Jesus. So don't do it. And that's why Paul didn't do it. Granted, Paul's very anti-sex and just anti-marriage in general. But Paul's probably the closest thing to an asexual character in the Bible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I would agree. And I, I saw a lot of stark contrasts between Paul's theology behind, you know, not being married to pursue, you know, the word of God and to follow Jesus with kind of some of the similar things that they were talking about in Salt and Light with, you know, giving up your, your worldly possessions. And I think if we refine them down to simplest terms, I think both of them combine to be this idea of what is your goal? What is your focus? Is your focus wealth? Is your focus stability? Is your focus marriage? Is your focus family? Or is your focus Jesus? And I think both are boiled down to that, is what is your focus? And I think when Jesus talks about, yeah, this idea of wealth is that your focus is that your safety net is that your goal is that everything you live off of, or is it me? And you have to choose. 
And I think being able to let go of wealth and let go of that idea of like, oh, I need all this money. I need to, to survive. I need all of this stuff. And trusting God, I think is, is the main point. It's not so much giving off everything and living on the streets. <laughs> I don't think you need to do that in order to, to follow Jesus. But I think it's that notion of, of where is your focus? And if your focus can be pulled away from wealth and just on God, I think that is kind of the goal. Similarly to what Paul was saying with marriage is that if you can <laughs> not get married, don't. If you can't, then get married. And same with the wealth. If you're able to give up your wealth, do it. If you can't, then wait. I think what's interesting is that when we're talking about billionaires and how they're hoarding all this wealth, not a whole lot of billionaires come to mind who also happen to be Christians. The only one that immediately comes to mind is, interestingly enough, J.K. Rowling. She's made a lot of donations over the years. I know you might have certain thoughts about her, but... I feel like it's another podcast. <laughs> that is another episode. That is another podcast episode. But I do think that her charitable spirit is definitely on display. And I think that in part is coming from her background as a Christian. And that's something that I do appreciate about her. Uh, I would agree. And I think the other thing with JK Rowling as well is she's had the experience of not having wealth. She's had the experience of, of having to work hard, having to struggle. And I think that's one of the things I really liked about the Hillbilly book is that it shows that, you know, he's, he got pretty far in life and he's doing great, but it showed that the struggles he had to go through to get there was just so much and that it really created the character that he had. And I think that's the other issue with a lot of billionaires that we see today is that majority of them inherited a lot of their wealth from their own families. And there's a very small percentage that actually were small, like poor middle-class that worked their way up. And there's the odd few, obviously, but majority of them were given that money from their parents. And so they've never had to work hard, like not to work hard. I shouldn't say that. Cause obviously if you're, you know, a CEO of a, of a company, a multi-billionaire company, that's a lot of work. I'm not saying it isn't. What I'm getting at is that if you don't have that personal experience or know a lot of people that have that experience, it's hard to have that empathy. And I think that was one thing that may and may not contribute to JK Rowling is, is yeah, her Christian side, but also the fact that she knows what it's like not to have anything. And I think that also really helps with engaging people on a personal level rather than an issue level. And this kind of goes a little bit into my own queer work is this idea of stories. And I think having personal stories and talking to people about, you know, identities, uh, politics, about wealth, and having that person-to-person connection really helps navigate real-world issues rather than talking about them as if they're some intellectual idea. And I think for a lot of wealthy people, you know, this idea of giving to the poor is just this theological, or not theological, but this intellectual idea that they have to do when they probably never even sat down with someone and talked to them about the struggles that they've had. Not saying that no one has, but I think that might play a part in, in how people talk about wealth and talk about money is realizing that, you know, what it's like to be poor, it's not fun. And I think having that, that experience goes a long way and being able to share that story I think changes a lot of people's hearts. And I think stories are a really great way into changing minds and to creating those revolutions. You know, that's what Jesus did. He told stories. He set an example. He was an experience and he shared stories of people. And that's literally the gospel. The gospel is a story of Jesus. You know, it's a story of these people that he helped. And it allows you to really put yourself in those shoes and to really have a human connection rather than this just topical idea or this, this intellectual 
topic that we talk about without putting a person's face in the issue. I think it, it really makes a difference. Yeah. So I would say we're running out of time right now when it comes to recording. Before we go, is there anything that you'd want to recommend? Recommend? Ooh. Like any other books, movies, maybe a certain ministry? Ooh. I guess for, for yourself, maybe, and maybe some of your listeners, I'd love potentially talk about a lot more queer theology. I'm thinking of one of the books and I can't remember it right now, so I'd have to look it up. But it's by a gentleman named Brown. And it, it's a really thorough depiction of queer theology. It's a helpful book. I find he does a really great job at bringing about both sides to the argument. It's not one of those books where it's like, oh, if you're against LGBTQ people, like, screw you type thing. But rather, it actually pulls all of the aspects of church doctrine and kind of takes a, an outsider stance on it. Uh, I found the kind of the title. It's called Bible, Gender, Sexuality, Reframing the Church's Debate on Same-Sex Relationships. And it's created by or written by James Brownson. That would be a really good book, I personally think, to read when it comes to kind of some of these debates about stories and God. But other than that... I think other than books, I strongly encourage people to get outside your comfort zone and have conversations like you and I do. You know, two people that are from different worlds that have different understandings of the world and have different stances on theology and being able to just sit and chat, I think is one thing that we're so far from, especially with the age of social media and this divisiveness where, you know, we have, you know, anti-gay and pro-gay, we have anti-abortion, pro-abortion, we have, you know, these, all these and ors going on. Um, with all these certain identities and ideologies, yeah, we can't just sit down and talk about it. You know, it has to be, oh, you're wrong, I'm right, or I'm better than you, you're worse off. And it's just this notion of fighting. And I, I think that's not helping anyone. And so if I were, for anyone listening, I would encourage you to find someone that potentially has a different view than you of something that is any topic and just to sit down and have an awesome, honest, vulnerable conversation with them without the goal to be right. And learn from them because we're all not the same. Exactly. Yeah. See you guys. See ya. This has been Because We're Not the Same, a podcast hosted, produced, and edited by Nathan Raymond Ray, with special guest Shiloh Rossborough. To listen to more episodes, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Verbal, iHeartRadio, or Podbean. You can also visit our Facebook page or our website bwntscast.wordpress.com. If you're interested in coming on the show as a guest, feel free to reach out to us and we'll see about having you on. Thank you for listening.